welcome to the latest episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast. If you are a leader who is serious about building your leadership skills and transforming your organizational culture, you are in the right place. I'm Russell Stratton. And I'm Ken Cameron. Sometimes difficult conversations suck, but you need to have them. So in every episode of the I Need to Effing Talk to You podcast, we ask leaders about the most difficult conversation that they've had with their employees, coworkers, suppliers, customers, or even their bosses. We ask them how the F they managed to get through those challenging moments so that you can learn from their successes and maybe even from their missteps, all so that you can become a better leader. In this episode, we need to effing talk to Paul McIntyre-Royston. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. It is delightful to be here. Thank you both. Paul is the CEO for Grand River Hospital Foundation and also founder and principal of Cause Profit, where he believes you can build and create profit for a cause you are passionate about. Paul engages with all facets of your nonprofit organization to build the fundraising, marketing, and organizational skills to reposition for dynamic growth and opportunity. Paul has worked with more than 100 organizations and spoken with over 25,000 people across Canada, the United States, and Europe since 2001, including Canadian Olympic Foundation, Calgary Public Library, and Hamilton Health Services. That's quite the giant background there, Paul. That's quite a lot of different organizations that you've worked with. Uh, you know what? It's been a privilege to be a. I've been a have privilege to be a CEO for quite a long time and do a lot of different in, interactions and engagements. You know, the the whole thing around the cause profit idea is just so often we we view nonprofits or NGOs in a certain lens, and you know, coming from that fundraising side more than sort of a traditional building up around a certain cause, I, I fundamentally believe that you can have people want to find that profit and to sort of seek out a different way to do it. And so that sort of methodology of of seeking profit for a cause has been a, a good entry door to talk to a lot of different people. Mm-hmm, right. And so, which leads us to kind of that question, what the F made you choose this type of work in the first place? Completely fell into it. I uh, had worked for an organization called Katimovic, which was a national youth program in Canada. And uh, I lived and actually did the program myself and then lived in multiple places uh, across Canada doing volunteer work. And um, it was this opportunity to uh, immerse yourself in the community. And so it really was a community development type role working with youth. And um, at the University of Waterloo, where I did my degree in math, uh, they were hiring for what I read was a development officer. Didn't know what that did. And so I applied for the job. It didn't say too much. I said, oh, I think I could kind of do that. I put in a ridiculously, you know, I was 22 or something terrible resume. It was like far too long and there was lots of color and pictures. Um, and uh, got hired by the dean there um, who had no me when I was a student and then development office said they had wanted nothing to do with me. And so, because I had no experience whatsoever. <clears throat> so I had a rough start a little bit with learning fundraising and, but just really, you know, that first gift, uh, which I had nothing to do with, but I had to go with the president of the university and he closed a million dollars and it was my prospect. So I somehow got credit, didn't do anything other than take notes, but just seeing the power of what that had, that gift did for everyone. Um, and so I fell into this work because, you know, it's not about the fundraising, it's about the community you build with this kind of work. 
So explain a little bit more for our listeners, Paul, as to what you actually effing do. It sounds sure. fantastic, but um, you know, enlighten the unenlightened as to, as to what you do day to day. Yeah, great question. Um, I often joke uh, I have lunch with rich people, um, which is just a, a terrible way of saying it, but it, it's not dissimilar from some of the function, right? It's, it's aligning people who potentially have capacity to give to your cause. And so on a day-to-day basis, I am connecting and meeting with, and it's not just wealthy individuals, frankly, I'll have lunch with anyone. Um, but it's, it's truly about that building of something greater that can't, has to be done together. Right. So it's this, this community building idea. It's this engaging people in something greater than themselves. And I think we all as people have a desire to whether it's to leave a mark or to make a better world or, or whatnot. And the philanthropic side of my work, the raising the money is, is just a tool for that for both for the person who supports, but also for the institution. And I worked with the hospitals. I worked with uh, universities, libraries, the Olympic committee and, and doing that kind of work and getting people engaged and excited and, and for me, it's if you get somebody engaged and excited in the right way, they will add a zero to what they were going to do, which then becomes incredibly transformational for the organization and for that individual. Hopefully that described it. If not, I can bring out some it, more analogies. It does, actually. And, and I'd like just to sort of follow up with a, um, a question for We had one of our previous guests who was also in, in the fundraising realm in nonprofits, Amtul Siddiqui. And one of the things that Amtul was talking about, and she had been in the in this sort of role with a number of organizations for a number of years, was the sort of changing face of fundraising. And one of the challenges that she said it came across was, um, how do we now tap into new potential donors who aren't the traditional people that we've always spoken to uh, like you go to the same well every time. Um, so how do, how do you manage that where you're looking for perhaps whether it's, you know, uh, new Canadians or it's it's people that are different from the usual profile that you've had? Um, how do you sort of diversify your um, donor pool? Well, and that's actually one of the reasons why lunch with rich people kind of doesn't cut it anymore. And so we've, in my organization now and in the past few, it's really been how do you think about less how we want the money and more how we can align people's passions and interests. And so for my example for that is creating multiple business lines where people can participate, whether it's the purchase of something, whether it's the giving of time, whether it's a gaming opportunity. And so we've grown our business lines at my current institution from probably about four to more than 20 different ways that people can choose to give. And we're finding when we look at that is that if you can get them in one, then they're often interested in another one, and then they can get in a third and fourth and so on. And by that time, you know, they're signing over their firstborn. But but the goal is it, it's about finding it because some people are not philanthropic. They don't want to give you $20 and say, you know, go do something good with it. They want to buy a hat. This is one of our hats. They want to play a 50-50 ticket so they get skin in the game. My answer to that is great. And so we use less the, the idea of donor and more supporter. And so we actually track unique supporters. Um, so a number of people in a year who give us a non-zero gift um, or non-zero amount of money. And so how do we engage with them? And, you know, speaking to different audiences, uh, different cultural perspectives, uh, different social constructs, all of that, we, we need to be able to reach out to that in a way that's also very authentic. And that's probably the key to all of this, because otherwise you can just be seen as like a greedy, uh, a greedy organization, which isn't going to serve the purpose well at all. 
Paul, you mentioned early in the conversation, the dean who was the first person who hired you in that first organization. And I wonder if you might cite any mentors or leaders that you that have led the way for you or or in whom you follow their footsteps. Or were you one of those mavericks who beat their own path through the bushes with a machete until you found your way through to people's hearts and wallets? Uh, a terrible with a machete, uh, Ken. I just have no upper arm strength. Um, you know, for for me, there's been a lot of people over the years. Um, I, that dean was Alan George. Uh, I'll say his name. Uh, definitely inspirational. Um, you know, if I think deeply on that, though, it it really has coalesced for me in the last two years. Um, uh, a gentleman by the name of Bill Patasic, who was the CEO of the Calgary Public Library, who passed away a few years ago. Um, he more than anyone else. Uh, and there's been a lot of people who have helped shape and inspired me and, and connected me to the community. Bill in particular, from a leadership, from a having difficult conversations, um, from admitting and being full of flaws and having incredible authenticity, but also being just the inability to transform. Uh, it was bar none. And so the awe that I have for him and, you know, we had on his calendar it was always empty. The calendar was literally always empty. There was never anything on it. And he was the CEO of the Calgary Public Library. And But he just made time for the right things at the right moments and um, was just, yeah. And, and he was able to do things that I just am in awe when I think about change management and and all of that. So if I, I, I always think, how would I do, how would Bill do this? I often ask myself. Um, uh, as we go forward, so a lot of lot of respect there, and and there's a there's a longer list, but he's he's at the top of it. I remember Bill well, and I remember um, uh, I became a supporter of the Calgary Library uh, through one of their one of the dinner programs. I was a, I was a table guest, table host at one of your um, uh, Bob Edwards Luncheon Awards ceremonies, where I first heard you speak, and I first heard Bill speak at the same event. And it was between the two of you, I was won over to being a library supporter, and I was uh, you know um, you know one of the many 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 who bought uh, the little name on the wall at the of the new Central Library. So I have you to thank for roping me in. Sorry about that, Ken. And, and well, I, was, I just get an endless stream of emails now from the library all the time. But fortunately, most of them are about books I have on hold. So that's actually not so bad. Um, the So I'm really glad to hear about Bill again. I, I mean, I really appreciate that. But you talked about, um, when you were talking about Bill, like, what was the what was the most important personality trait or strength that you think a leader needs to have that either Bill showed you or maybe somebody else showed you? You know, I'll strike back to to sort of what I ended there, which is this idea of authenticity, this the fundamental that you're not being bullshitted, right? I think so often, especially in, in business and in my world as well, people kind of, they stunt or they pretend that they have something. Um, and you can be bombastic and bold and not have things figured out. But if you deliver that inauthentically, uh, in it's not going anywhere. If you deliver it authentically and are open and honest and transparent and people believe what you're saying, uh, there's almost nothing that can't be, can't be delivered that way. You know, I, I, Bill had it in spades. Um, I think I've been fortunate enough to, to have, have come across as authentic and, and frankly, into my mind, being authentic. But it's that you can believe you're authentic and think you're acting authentically. But if that's not perceived authentically authentic, it, it doesn't cut it, right? And so it's, it's, I think it's a true... It's something that I think more leaders can focus and cultivate on. And I don't think there's a secret methods to teaching authenticity necessarily, although I'd love to hear if you guys have any ideas on that. Um, because it's, it's, it can cut through almost everything else. Uh, 
you can, cause I suck at so many things. Like I make mistakes every day as a CEO. I've been a CEO for 10 years. Like I make tons of mistakes every day. There's so many things I'm bad at, but usually that can be encountered because or countered because uh, of the of the way in which i know that i have the privilege of being able to speak like that but also backing it up with actions like the authenticity is a is a is a is a spectrum i think that's really interesting that you say that paul because it's it's a theme that's come out you know again and again with guests that have been on our show um, about being authentic about being true to who they are and it's not like this you know leadership isn't that cookie cutter you know, what makes an effective leader? That's the six things that you need to be, and everybody needs to be just a, ver- a version of that. And I, I think you, you know, you're illustrating the point there that it's um, a lot of it's about who who you are. And I often, you know, I've been working with leaders in various organisations for thirty years now. And one of the things I say to new leaders, particularly, is you know, don't try and be something you're not. You're not going to be good at everything. You can play to your strengths, find people who will come in to maybe support you on the areas you're not so good at, but be but be you. And I think people respond to that rather than the idea of this, um, you know, pretending to be the ideal leader and people just see through that very quickly. Um, and then they end up not trusting you because they think you're false. And I think it's becoming more true, Russell, right? Like, I think this is in our post-COVID, wherever we are in that journey. Like, I think people are demanding a, a, re- a realistic sentiment. You know, there is no more time for, like, life is too short and too precious and just be you. And I, I think it's hard, though. Like, I think people are so well-trained not to not to make mistakes or not to be wrong that I think people feel like they can't actually be themselves because of their, whether it's their self-perception or, or not. I just am blind to that. So I can just, you know, push through that without looking at it. Yeah, but but I think it's interesting what you again. It's important what you've said there about you know you admitted you know I, I make mistakes every day, and and one of the things I, I I like in there is that if if you as the as the CEO can say I've made a mistake, but this is how I've addressed it, or this is what I'm doing to counter it, it, it gives doesn't it give the permission to other people in the organisation that you can try things. It won't always be a hundred percent, but as long as you're learning from it and you're moving forward. Um, you know, we can work with this rather than this, as you say, that sort of fear that everything has to be perfect. I can't afford to make a mistake. Um, and then you end up, you know, not really pushing the envelope at all of, of your development as an individual. One of the things when we're hiring for people and we do a, a speed interview process is, is I say to them, like I go first and we usually have 10 staff interview 10 different people in a, on an online type format that's served me really well over the years. But one of the things I always do is I go first. I don't ask questions. I actually try to sell them on the job and get them so excited because one of the goals is we want to enable them to do the best work of their lives. The only way that happens is if they're actually doing that because it's so often, you know, they're trying to do all these other things that they're just really not good at. It's sort of the the proclivities, sort of the things you're naturally good at and my made up word, the anticlivities, those things you're inherently not good at. And one of mine is follow-up. You'd think as a fundraiser, follow-up is a really important skill. It is. I am terrible at it. So things get to me, I get people excited, I get excited, and then I just fall off on it. So I've had to find ways to compensate that. My team knows People know I'm quite open about it. Like I really struggle with that part of it. Um, my ADHD weighs into that too, but I get excited about the new bobble. Ooh, shiny, right? And so that's my own part of my own authenticity. But it, it's so important that we start to really enable people to be themselves. And that means some people shouldn't be in certain roles. And that's okay too. 
And something you said uh, a while ago twigged for me that you talked about authenticity backed up with action. And it occurred to me then that in, in the way you're describing it, authenticity is, is a verb. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it, because it is. Because it's, it's literally, do you, are your actions matching your words? And, and there's such a disconnect so often. Like if I, hey, I could say I'm great at follow-up. <laughs> and then I don't follow up with you. And I think this even when we were setting this up, Ken, I don't think I was responsive as I probably should have been. Not that I didn't want to be. I just, that's truly an area where I'm just so challenged by. And, and so, wait a minute, if I suddenly got really irresponsive, maybe I'm being inauthentic. I hope not. But it's, 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 it's a really interesting piece. And I think it's absolutely a verb. Yeah. Good observation. Thank you. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, um, just to be, get into your authentic self and just find a little bit more about yourself. Can you tell us about what are you reading or watching on, on Netflix or TV or what movies have you seen that are teaching a leadership lesson that you can share with our listeners? Well, there's so many that don't. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's a few classics that I think jump into my mind and I didn't want to be too script scripty when I said them, you know, Shawshank Redemption always, you know, jumps into my brain because it's about uh, using a spoon to dig your way out of small and big problems. But um, the one that I would say from a leadership perspective that gets to me, um, and I, I'm sappy about it, I would say it's, it's The Princess Bride. Uh, it's probably the movie I've ever seen the most in my entire life. I've seen it probably 40 times. And I'm not someone who likes to watch anything more than once. Um, the Princess Bride, if, if people don't know it, it, it is just a, an epic tale of uh, a princess uh, who's a bride and uh, a pirate and adventure and so on. And, and it really, it's very clear along that journey how you need, going back to this idea of authentic self, which we're really leaning on in here, but it's every single person on the, the good side ends up being incredibly authentic. And it's really the key challenge of, of one of the major characters, the princess, who has actually been inauthentic the whole time. And it's about this process of self-discovery. You know, uh, I'm a, a fan of Drake when he says YOLO. Um, you only got one opportunity to do all these different activities in, in life. And so to try to do it in any way that's inauthentic is going to hurt your soul. And, you know, you're going to be well past in retirement or something. And you'll be like, Oh, wish I was more authentic. <laughs> you know, I wish I was more in line with who I should have been as opposed to pretending something I'm not. To bring our viewers up to speed, probably the reason you've seen um, Princess Bride 40 times is because you have six children. So it's, uh, five, that's probably yes. well, five, sorry, five. my wife <laughs> has six children because I'm often one of them. Um, <laughs> But I do well, and I, but the thing is, I watched it probably in university a whole bunch of times. It came it came out in eighty seven, I think, when I was like nine, um, and so I saw it a lot then. And, and my kids have seen it as well. It's just, it's such a. If, if people haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. It's a incredible story. There's some great lines from it, but um, it's just a, about coming adversity as well. Like I fundamentally believe that if you can aim where you want to go. Um, you can, you can get there, even though if you have no bloody idea of how to get there, uh, but you can sort of figure out your way and build a team and build a, an army with you to help achieve that, which I think well, happens thank you, And as we get to the, uh, the winter in the great white North, it could be a good opportunity for one or two of our listeners to go and uh, watch that on those cold wintry evenings. If they run out of what to do on their Netflix subscription, um, 
We're going to take a little intermission here uh, for a moment, but when we come back from our advert break, we're going to hear about the most difficult workplace conversation that Paul has had and how he dealt with it. We'll be back in a flash. Okay, this is going to be a different kind of ad. One of our clients wants to do the pitch for us. That client is Dean Jessen, who's operations manager at Volker Seven Highways. Dean was a guest on our podcast in episode number 36. And at the end of his interview, he surprised us by telling our listeners just what he thought of our work. Russ and Ken, I appreciate the work your team does with managing difficult workplace conversations. Volker Steven has had the pleasure of going through that a few times now. And I know some other parts of our companies are also engaging that with yourselves and Blue Gym. And just for the audience's information, we know in a work environment, it goes without saying that there's different views and perspectives out there. And agreements, disagreements, conflicts, etc., are going to take place. And, and what we've really benefited from, from the work your team does, is that you address these conflicts or disagreements. You work with the company, you address their specific conflicts and disagreements, and you make it a real life setting by bringing actors and mediating and keeping that context going and the discussions going. So it prepares our leaders in Volker Steven and others in the leadership role to be ready for these conversations when they do take place. So really appreciate the work you gentlemen do as well in your team. We had no idea that Dean was going to say that, but we're really glad that he did. For years, Ken and I have been leading these workshops on how to navigate difficult workplace conversations. Because we use live actors to play your difficult employee, customer, supplier, or boss, it's as close to the real thing as you can get without having the real problematic individuals in the office with you. And let me tell you, it's a whole lot psychologically safer. If you'd like to find out more about our live workshops or our online courses, then head on over to INeedToEffingTalkToYou.com. And now, back to the episode. Welcome back, everyone, from our intermission break. We're chatting today with Paul McIntyre Roasting, CEO of the Grand River Hospital Foundation and also founder and principal of Cause Profit. And we're about to talk with Paul about the most difficult workplace conversation that he's had. But before we do, we got to bring our, our listeners up to speed. Paul is one of the people that we interviewed for our book, I Need to Effing Talk to You, The Art of Navigating Difficult Workplace Conversations. In that book, we have four different scenarios that we outlined set in four different types of workplaces. There's an engineering firm, there's a construction firm, there's uh, a fictional city work, work environment, but there's also a, a nonprofit, a charitable organization. And in fact, it's actually a hospital. And we, um, we based that scenario around some stories that you told us, Paul. So thanks very much for being part of that. Uh, I, I still have my signed copy on my shelf uh, from you guys, and uh, it's uh, it was a great journey. And just reading in that was, you know, because you know, I pulled punches out the right word, but there were some things like, oh yeah, I was an asshole in that regard, or like I didn't do this, and it was so wonderful to be able to have that sort of reflected back to you. I think you know we were talking about authenticity earlier. It, it's. It, one of the keys for getting better, I believe, at authenticity is to be able to look in a mirror um, and and have it reflected back to you. And I think it's very difficult to do that by yourself. And so, you know, if I, if I had to think of a personal learning from that book, it was like, oh, yeah, so that's how that was seen. And in the moment, it's difficult as an individual in your career to to be able to see those things. 
Well, don't be too hard on yourself, Paul. And do keep in mind, I did have to fictionalize things. I wasn't in the room. I made up the dialogue and all that stuff. But I was very tickled when you said before the call that it sounded like you, that you could see yourself reflected in that. Yeah, you hit that on the nose. At least, you know, that, that's how I saw it. Um, it very much reflected a lot of the of where I was in my moment in that career. And, you know, if I had to reflect to now, which it's been, I think, 15 years since that incident in, in the book, that, that ties in, um, it is such a... You know, I, I still have so many things to reflect and learn on. You know, I've gotten better in all these different areas, but there's still so much to go. And so it was a uh, it was a good good look back. Nice, nice. I think it's I think it's hysterical that there's uh, there's lunch in that scenario too as well. You described having lunch with rich people, and there's a lunch moment in that as well. So that's that's great. But th- that's really just by way of introduction because the story you're going to tell us is not the story from the book. So we're going to tease our readers with that. They'll get two Paul stories: the one that you're about to tell us, and they can then they can order that book and read that and get more Paul, all Paul, all the time, as far as I'm concerned. But here you're going to tell us a, a different incident and maybe one that came from a role where you were the CEO rather than um, being the, um, the the other player in the scenario. For sure. No, happy to go into that. So um, this was a difficult conversation where I uh, had to let go of my number two, uh, sort of my, my closest person at the organization. And uh, what's the best way to start? I know going into the situation when I first started this organization, there was the uh, I had worked a little bit with this person in another role, and both of us were expecting some not necessarily to go that well, and so had an early conversation about that, and both made a commitment: let's give this a good old college try, um, because fundamentally it's for the best of the organization and and what we're trying to achieve together. Um, and then about a year happened, and more and more. I was under the impression that this was not working. Um, that wasn't mutual, however, that feeling. And so it caused a lot of friction and it wasn't a right where, where we were headed. I was asked to completely transform the organization. Um, there was sort of an old guard and then that was sort of staying the path. And it was just, there was a continuing misalignment. And so had a, had a conversation where I was was preparing to to let this individual go, and you know, truthfully, the hardest conversation in my career because this person's an incredible fundraiser, incredibly talented about building relationships and 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 doing that. But as we sort of cited earlier, it wasn't, and it wasn't even the authenticity for this individual. They had their own authenticity that I think was was well kept, but it was an authenticity that didn't suit where the organizational authenticity was going. And, and so there was a disconnect, like it, it, both in terms of action and thought process and methodology just didn't fit. And so having to tell somebody who was a great person and, and didn't fit in anymore was, was terrible, right? Like I had, you know, I did quite a bit of prep for this and had to do it by video as well because this was during COVID. Um, it was a really, really challenging, emotional conversation um, that I, I, you know, still think back about what I could have done better on it. I think overall it went okay, but it was just was a, it was a doozy emotionally. Letting anyone go is is such a, a a challenging piece, but this in particular was was really tough. And and you know, you never want to hurt people ever. Like it really is about how do you how do you help people thrive. Uh, w- without 
without making it, you know, this is not, this is it's not their fault. It's just what, with what's going on in this case, it just was not the right fit from a, from an authentic side. So. And well, before we dig into the meat of the conversation and how it unfolded, let's, let's just dig into a little bit more of the setup. So the, the, the individual, you, you were new to the organization and the individual had been there prior to your arrival. Is that correct? The, yeah. And sort of a number yeah. two role. Correct. Yeah. And, and so then, so yeah, so you're coming in, you're there to transform the organization. This other person had been there previously and are they married to the status quo in some regard? They're married yes. to the old way of like, doing things? Uh, they understood that this was, uh, that we were changing, but just because you understand something doesn't mean you necessarily accept it or can, can do it. You, you mentioned earlier uh, in the sort of setup in there, Paul, you said you did quite a bit of prep before this interview. Could you give our listeners just an idea of maybe some of the two or three you know, key things that you wanted to get in place uh, before you started? Well, referencing the great work that you guys do, absolutely. But also thinking about, so what is the scenario here? Like I really wanted to understand what was I getting into? And, and I actually spent some time with um, HR colleagues. Okay, so what are the different opportunities here? What are the different avenues? Um, both in terms of the, the scenarios about how it th- those, the, the specifics of the conversation would actually go and then how to, 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 to talk it through, but also sort of what are the different scenarios for, for an exit in this case? Like what are those different options that we can? And I'm a big believer is that, um, you know, if if you're if you're in this kind of situation, if you're choosing to let someone go, you have to make it uh, comfortable, uh, and you have to make it safe, and you have to make it not not threatening uh, as much as you can. It is going to be you are the bad guy in the situation, unquestionably. But how do you at least minimize that uh, to minimize the pain on the other person? Because you are literally making a decision, no matter the justification that you have you're causing pain to somebody. And that, that to me, you know, when you talk about the hardest part, that who, I don't really want to do that. Like, uh, you know, that's, I don't like causing anybody pain, but if I don't address it and I've learned this in my early career, I never would have done this. Never would have let people go. Uh, just if, Oh, we can make it work. No. <laughs> and so how do you, how do you, how do you find that? Because if if you're going to build a successful organization that's aligned, that's authentic, that's pursuing big visions, if people aren't the right fit, you you got to make you got to make that decision, even though it it hurts you and them. Um, yeah. And I, I, I like you. You know, we emphasize that point on our workshops about people taking early proactive management action. It's something again that that is reiterated by guests such as yourself. And so it's nice to hear you. You know, saying that you know, we can't avoid having this conversation. We're going to have to have it. Otherwise, things are only only going to um, to, to get worse on there. Um, I also like the point you were talking about that sort of planning out what various scenarios might look like. And uh, again, that reminded me of some of the work that Ken and I do with with people about saying, you know, not just thinking about you know one potential option, but two or three potential options, so that you're prepared. And then, uh, as I often say to people, you know, the likelihood is if you I play test out perhaps the the, the worst scenarios it could be. The chances are it's not going to be as bad as the scenarios that you had had play tested, and it might become easier. So, with that in mind, when you got to the actual conversation, Paul, um, was it easier than you thought? The same as you thought, or more difficult? It's always really hard 
right? No matter because of because of it's the actual delivery, but I, but the preparation definitely was an asset. It's it's funny. I know uh, Ken in particular. You do a lot of uh, using theater to sort of enact situations, and um, I for this one I actually did that. And I'm not someone who likes to rehearse much of anything. But I, I, I actually did. I, I had an HR person I, and I actually had uh, had my HR person act out the whole situation with me, and I actually delivered the line, which is something I hadn't ever done before. You know, read about in practice, know some of the strengths of it, but hadn't actually done. And it was truly, it made a difference for me being able to. You know, it's almost funny to say this to be more authentic in my presentation because I was less searching for words. I was less searching for what I wanted to convey because I'd practiced for it, right? And so, uh, legitimately, in that in that situation, it was a was a big, big uh, asset. Right. What a lovely uh, key message you've just communicated that by rehearsing and preparing and outlining what it was you wanted to say, rather than feeling like you were speaking like a robot, it actually had the opposite effect. It allowed you to be more authentic, more present, and more connected to the person you were talking with. Well, and it's funny, it goes against my nature. I was diagnosed with ADHD about two, three years ago, um, which is a surprise to no one in my life. But it's it's been, you know, this quick, rapid response has been something I've been doing my whole career, right? Like, just go. What's the problem? What's going on? Um, me sort of reversing traditional pathways that I've chosen, which is quick action, and instead reflecting provided a more immersive experience that was really critical for this thing. And um, I think it, it ended it a lot better than it could have ended in, in how we thought about some scenarios. So yeah, it's a, it's a good point. So I'd like to know what happened during the conversation. If you could now walk us through that conversation as best you can remember from the moment that you walked into the room or the other person walked into the room um, until they left, like, give, us the, give us the outline. Well, and it ended up being a digital one, right? Just, just like this. So that those are <laughs> to have to do that not in person is is a tough thing. Less so for uh, sort of me in the position of power, but it's tough, right? Like to 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 have those conversations online. Um, you know, I, I think anytime you're being called into a meeting like that, as uh, this is on the other side, you're always thinking something's going on, right? Because you don't give a lot of context, and so I know there was some apprehension and. A fear on the individual's face and just, uh, but what, you know, after I ran through some of the things that I had practiced saying, um, and was just open about the why and, and sharing authentically about conversations around where we're headed as an organization and that, that, that there was appeared to be a misalignment and then actually delivering some of the package. I was so pleasantly surprised by their response. You know, I, I I let people go before, and there was often a lot of tons of emotion, and it was fraught with such to, uh, strong feelings, which I think is an authentic response to those kind of situations. This individual, though, um, was remarkable. Um, they expressed emotion, but they expressed it right rationally. There was an understanding, lots of good questions, and I think that the practice with my colleague and the the, the patience with which we delivered it was really paid off in terms of a relatively calm. And I had so much apprehension going in. Like I was just like, oh, this fucking sucks. Like I was just so, uh, it was, uh, it was awful. Right. And by, by doing some deliberate work by going in, um, and then seeing that it was, it was a remarkable shift that I didn't expect. So it was incredibly hard conversation going in by the end of it. Um, it completely cemented 
the, the rationale. And yes, this was absolutely the right decision. And though I still had a lot of pain in terms of the emotions that you're, you're causing in the situation, um, to see how, how well it was handled was a, was a relief. And did you, the way you're describing it, did you, it sounds as if you, you laid out a lot of the rationale first before you told the person you were letting them go, or was it the opposite? Did you kind of start with the thesis statement, we're letting you go and here's why? How did you, how did you structure that? It was more the second. Um, I, 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 in terms of to be transparent, I don't want to, I don't want to make a a shit sandwich. Like I want to say what the shit is and then deliver the rest of the meal to be blunt. I don't know if you need to blurt that out later. This is a family oh, gosh, family no. podcast. This is the effing, I need Fair to effing talk to you podcast. We, we can talk about shit sandwiches. We have a whole episode on the shit sandwich actually. So Ooh, I'm excited. Um, and so fundamentally it was so like, I, I think I remember the conversation. It was like, we're making the decision to let you go. I think was the first line I said, and then dived into that. Right. Cause it's otherwise you're just, you're not, it's not, and it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have been authentic. Like I would have been like couching it and all these other things. Oh, and by the way, we're going to do this. So. And what's good to hear from, from that, Paul, is that something you know, that by being direct, getting to the point as to what, what the whole conversation was about um, and not, you know, putting, wrapping that, uh, the shit in the sandwiches so often people, people do, um, didn't have, the negative effect, and I think sometimes people will believe that if I if I've got this bad news to give somebody, so if I sort of wrap it round in all this sort of nice filler, then hopefully I can get it through, and they they won't realise. But I think it's back to that authenticity that you were talking about. If you're having a conversation as you were, where you you were going to let someone go, that was what was going to happen. Then why would you spend you know five ten minutes? fluffing them up about how wonderful they are only to tell them you were going to let them go. Why not just cut, cut, cut to the chase? And I think people ultimately, if it's done in a um, sensitive way, which I think from what you've been saying, it obviously was, you had prepared it and what, how you'd say and what explanation you'd give and you'd practiced it, that people respect that. They're being treated as an adult. Um, they're not being treated as a child and, uh, you know, try to make it there, there, it will be better for you, you know. Or that one is, it's going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And you're like, well, no, it isn't because I'm the one who's leasing my job, not you. So, yeah, you're always, and that's my reference to the bad guy. You're always the bad guy in that situation. And that's okay. You just, sometimes you just got to accept it, that you're the bad guy. And it doesn't mean it's not the right thing for the organization, but as a leader, you've got to, you got to take those, those hits, right? Like it's, uh, you're going to have pain for long-term gain, right? Like it really is an important part of, I think, leadership. And I, th- I think it took me years to get to that place where I was even comfortable entertaining that idea. You know, going back into my career, I would have probably done some things differently should uh, should I have gotten a little bit better. A nice long way to go. Uh, but, but that's really key. It, 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 just alluding to something that you triggered in my brain, I don't do traditional performance appraisals at my organization because fundamentally I don't believe that an annual moment of like filling out a form does anything. And so we do a quarterly self-evaluation for everybody and they do their own and they tell us um, how they're doing. If we disagree, well, well, we'll talk about that, but that should happen in the moment. It should happen on the project. It should happen at that moment and not in a way that's critical. It's like, okay, this is where I think you could have gone differently here or this is it. or And also, great job on this part and this part and this part, right? Like those, those have to happen, especially in, in the day and age where we are with things need to rapidly evolve and change. Um, and that applies to the, the difficult conversation that I, that I'd had there. 
and I think you're right, you're preaching to the to the converted here about the um, you know having that you know early proactive management action, the annual appraisal. One of my bugbears I had worked as you know in, as an HR manager and as an operational manager for over the years, and you know I, I never really saw the benefit of telling somebody that they'd done something six months ago that they could have been better at. Books then gives them literally no time to, to to improve it and then mark them down on it. Well, why can't you tell somebody at the time and help them improve or tell them they're doing something really good and get them to do more of it? Why why wait to the end of the year? Um, but with the point you were saying about the you know, being the um, being the bad guy in the situation it reminded me of a technique um, that was used by the Royal Navy. Um, of how they dealt with bereavement and having to tell service personnel's families um, if a uh, member of their family had been had been killed in action, uh, and, it, and it was an acceptance that if you're the person who has to give that news, you are not going to be seen in a positive light at all because you're giving people possibly the worst news that they're ever going to get. So they always had this where they would always have two people go. One person's job was to give the bad news. Um, and then to uh, to go into the other room or to to do one side, and the second person's job was then to talk about net. Well, okay, so what support can we give you in terms of helping you go forward? Um, and the the rationale was that the negative emotions around the bad news is going to sit with person number one, so you can't then start talking about. Um, okay, this is what support we offer because the person's, they're not listening to that. All they're really remembering is you're the person that told them that bad news. So it was it was not about abdicating responsibility. It was just understanding that that's how people would compartmentalize it. And, and talking to a couple of you know, uh, senior officers there some years ago had said, yeah, you know that, that works. People then will know that that was the person who told them this and then we have a little bit of pause and you know, a cup of tea or whatever it might be. And then I can. Then the next second person can talk to them about what the way forward is, um, and that works. And people are a lot more um, open to that. But if you try to do it all in the one conversation with one person, it never worked, and they were always, you know, still, you know, held in a mental space there. So uh, they're reminded of what you were saying. You're the bad guy in that situation. Whatever, whatever you're trying to do. I sure hope to God that those two soldiers would trade that role back and forth between them so that the same person didn't have to be the bad guy all the time, right? But I'm curious, Paul, in to tie this back to the conversation you had with your number two that you had, you let go. You said you went through a number of different um, packages that you could be offering to the person. So how did, how did that roll out? Did you, were you the person that, that, that offered the information on that, on those different packages or was that the HR person? How did that? I did end up having an HR person in the meeting with me made the decision of similar to those soldiers, right? Having two people there. And I think often people in my position use the HR as the bad people. And I think they're often trained to do that. We made the decision not to do that. If I'm letting someone go, I got to own that shit, right? Like I, I got to, I got, so I, I typically did that. And then HR can be perfunctory and sort of go through some details that we chatted through in advance. But I was the one to deliver the why. I was the one to deliver the bad news because anything other than that would be like a cap out in my mind, right? And so that doesn't suit my, my, the way I like to portray myself, right? It, it would have been misaligned. Yeah, I'll honor that in you uh, for, for this moment, if I may, that not a lot, not every leader does do that. And it was uh, strong of you to be that person and to recognize what's the expression that um, uh, heavy is the head that wears the crown. And with uh, with great responsibilities come those uh, the, the need to to wear those, wear them. 
Right. So good for you. Let's honor that in you. Well, thank you. I, it, it's, I, I don't need the praise, but it's always welcome. Um, it's, it, it's funny. We, we just had a team retreat. I do retreats with the team every 12 weeks. And um, we just had one last week. And one of the things that came out, because we're a very autonomous organization, as in we sort of trust people to do what they need to do and get done what they need to get done. And um, we actually, the line of with great power comes great responsibility because every single one of those people put their hand up and said they've never had so much power and opportunity to do at every level down to the like and 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 yet it's it's hard too because it's there is a responsibility that comes with that right and we're not an organization one thing we've realized in organizations that i've run is we're not a good place for telling people what to do like if you're someone who needs to be told what you're doing we are a terrible place to work um you're going to be so sad we've hired people like that um but because we didn't make it clear enough that we expect you to be relatively independent and you don't have to know what to do. You have to ask questions and be able to, to work your way. And so I, that's sort of going back to the authenticity side, our organization now, and, and yes, greatly influenced by me has become this authentic piece. And we, we use those as filters because otherwise we're, we're bringing on the wrong people, which then means we have a lot more work in the back end and some more uncomfortable conversations. Well, thank you so much for sharing that example with us and our listeners, Paul. I think people will find that very useful to hear. You know, the, the other leaders who've been in that had that difficult conversation to have, and some of the things that the ideas that you used that helped you and was effective. Um, before we close, we always like to give our guests an opportunity to share uh, something that they're working on at the moment. Uh, maybe it's a, a fundraiser you're doing or a project you're involved on that you think that they should effing care about. So uh, over to you, sort of 60 seconds. What have you got up your sleeve that you'd like to uh, to share with our listeners, Paul? I, I would say, and it, I think it builds on what we talked about, um, fundamentally, I'm you know, with this cause profit sort of side organization that I run, it's about getting people to realize that there is no such thing as best practice. And I think we talked a little bit about that without saying it directly. There is only better practice. Just because the rules of something were written by someone else a few years ago or decades ago doesn't mean that in the modern scenarios it applies. And I think COVID's been in particular illuminating that. I work in an industry, healthcare, that's often very traditional. And we've been able to upend all of that and you know, leveraging the strength of COVID uh, to, to help do that. But fundamentally get people to break down the barriers, thinking that they can't do something. Every single thing we do as humans is all made up. It doesn't have any necessary basis in anything, but the scenario at the moment. And so I'm always, I work with people both in my own organization and others to challenge those assumptions. And so that's what I'm working on is to get people everywhere to say, you know what, just because something is this way, it doesn't mean it's going to work for you. It, it, you know, a best practice somewhere else isn't necessarily, you need to learn from that. You need to research that. You need to understand it. It's not dismissing prior knowledge, but it's taking that, synthesizing it and making it valid for you. We are in a world where people want to be fed things in a personalized manner. And I think you also need to work and conduct your organization in a personalized message. So we, we hire now less for, oh, we want you to do this job and we more hire for, this is kind of the job, but who are you? We want you because of what you bring. And so I would say my personal thing is championing that. And if anyone ever needs anybody to come talk about that, I talk to a lot of boards and get them to do things they weren't necessarily expecting. Um, I'm a big board pusher because that's where that real thinking and comfortability needs to start. 
Thanks, Paul. I've worked with you for years, both as a donor, but also as a consultant. I've come in and led um, some retreats for some of your staff at various organizations. And I, I, can, I can say that you are a great leader and you will be leading a great retreat yourself. So if anybody needs a stronger recommendation than that, well, I, I can't offer one. There is, uh, you are a great, you would be a great board facilitator. So I will point sad, anybody Ken. in your direction. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks very much, dear listener. That wraps up this episode. We really, really hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. It was a pleasure talking to you, Paul. And thank you, Russell, for all of those great questions that you posed. Listener, remember to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That way you will get informed of each episode when it comes out. Share the link with your friends and with your colleagues. And remember that you can always reach out to Russell and I at the email address in the show notes. Goodbye for now. And we will effing talk to you again soon. Bye.